I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert number 50, I believe. We've nimbly flicked one off our pads and sauntered through for our 50th. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Just raising the bat to the pavilion. The half ton is up. Yep. I'm Duncan, and Merry Christmas to one and all. I'm hoping you're kicking back with your family and watching Home Alone 1, 2, 3, and 4. Is there 4? Is there? I'm not sure. There's definitely 3. Or Christmas Story, or Gremlins, or Elf. As for me, I'll be hunting down whether there has been a Christmas film set in the Southern Hemisphere summer. Uh, there surely has to have been. Yeah, I'm wondering what it would be. Hopefully, a horror film. You know. Yeah, he's hoping, eh? Yeah, 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 yeah. I might, I might rewatch Black Christmas. Oh yeah. I'm Simon, and when I was a kid, I'd lie in bed at night and try with all my might to turn off the light switch <laughs> using the force. Uh, I'm afraid to report I never did manage it, but perhaps I just didn't have enough midichlorians. <laughs> So Simon, what have you been watching? Uh, well, not a heck of a lot this month. I've actually been sidetracked by discovering this uh, series on YouTube. It's a 15-part series about the silent film era. Oh, so 15 hours of it. I'm not sure how many other people would be into that, but I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, narrated by James Mason, and I think it was re- uh, filmed in the 80s. So there's actually enough of the people who started the silent cinema to still be able to talk about it. That's great. So they've got like, Lillian Gish. And Lillian people. Gish, uh, Colleen Moore, people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is amazing mm. to think that they were still around and being able to talk about it. And and it strikes you as how incredible it is that they invented this and nobody knew what they were doing. Yeah. Y- you know, the first close-up was an innovation, the first time two shots were put together. Mm. Um, I was just watching one on stunts, and I guess there was a certain circus tradition, but no one had done stunts like that. Mm. No one had done these horse stunts and riding along, and it was all new, you know, car yeah. stunts hadn't been performed. Yeah. Uh, and, and just watching them figure it out is amazing. Um, but film-wise, uh, after a month of pretty broad mainstream fear last month, I, I embraced horror again for December. Ah, good. Um, I couldn't resist the charming trailer and delightfully B-flick poster for Wolf Cop. <laughs> uh, but alas, it was slightly disappointing. Not as nutty as I'd hoped and confusing towards the end. It did have one of the more unique werewolf transformations I think I've ever seen, though. You know how they usually go. Claws burst from fingertips. Teeth rupture out of distending jaws. Well, this one starts with our wolf-to-be at the urinal when suddenly his todger bursts out into a furry wolf penis. <laughs> um, perhaps the first and last time I think I'll ever see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, before they became the studio who launched Roger Corman, AIP, American and International Pictures, made a wee series of low-budget horrors that reimagined the classic monsters relocated to the jitterbugging 50s. So starting with Michael Landon and I Was a Teenage Werewolf, then Gary Conway, and I was a teenage Frankenstein. They made a pair of fun fright films and ended in the film I saw this month, the very, very meta How to Make a Monster. Um, I kind of couldn't resist the story of AIP Studios themselves, deciding that despite the success of their teenage monster films, they were pulling the pin on the franchise, causing the man behind the monster makeup to turn his stars into real monsters and let them loose on the bean counters who were ruining his career. Wow, that's like a Wes Craven's new it's nightmare. Totally, it's it's like, like a forty years scream, but yeah, forty years early. <laughs> uh, so it's nineteen fifty-eight, you know, wow. uh, and it's quite amazing to watch. Um, it's actually not all that good, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. 
it plods in the second half, and then its third act kind of winds up quite quickly. Although for some reason it becomes colour. Oh wow! Really? Yeah, only in the last ten minutes is bam, it's in colour. Oh, it's like the reverse Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's totally, <laughs> and there's no reason for it. There's no like a uh, moment where they step into a colour world. It's just cut colour next scene. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and lastly, Grabbers, the fun Irish horror comedy which sees a bunch of blood-sucking extraterrestrial beasties try to take over a small island, only to run up against a perpetually drunk copper, uh, who discovers that the monsters cannot cope with the blood of drunkards. So the entire town decided to go on this massive bender. Like the pub just, like, all you can drink, and everyone's <laughs> drunk. Um, it's pretty fun, actually. Uh, it was a genuine good time. The monster, which was essentially a rolling ball of tentacles, looked ace, and the budget was clearly really decent, actually. So it was right. a really good fun film. Right, it's like uh, Blood for Dracula then, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and how about you? What have you been watching? Uh, I've watched a few films. I watched Parkland. Uh, the action takes place in the hospital in Dallas, Texas, where both JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald were taken after they were shot. Uh, I had some good performances. Paul Giamatti as the traumatized Abraham Zapruder, who famously filmed the assassination. Uh, and Jackie Weaver makes the most of her small scenes as the accused assassin's mother, proud of her son's infamy and her kind of like own escape from anonymity. Right. Uh, you know, claiming that he was working for the CIA and demanding that he has a state funeral because he's actually a CIA agent, Patsy. Right. You know, I adore Jackie Weaver. Oh, she, yeah, she's fantastic. She's got uh, literally about two scenes in this and she just really stands out in it. Two Days, One Night. Uh, in which Marianne Courtiard wanders Belgian suburbs over a weekend, trying to convince her co-workers to give up their cash bonuses so she can keep her job. Uh, Courtiard lends the film a strength, but it's like a really slight story, and there's not that much to it. Uh, look, I had gone 40 years without seeing The Sound of Music. <laughs> but that all changed last week when I had to watch it for work. Cut a promo from it, no less. It's a long film. Sure. Reprising its plethora of famous songs, sometimes four and five times that it reprises them. It's awkwardly structured with the first hour and a half just like a slow, drawn-out affair with little narrative movement, while the second half is a whirlwind of marriages, stage productions, Nazis, and crafty nuns. Uh, Julie Andrews is a star performer throughout, the joy flowing through her like she's you know, just charged with the light side of the force. Uh, but the cloying niceness of it is just, just like drowning in treacle. Uh, it mm. really is, even for that time period, you're like... I, look, I've on. never seen it either. I've avoided it. Christopher Plummer apparently hates it, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty over the top. But Julie Andrews, hey, you know, you've got to say star star yeah. performance. She's, she's really quite class in it. 1975's The Candidate. Robert Redford stars as a fringe eco-warrior who becomes a legitimate candidate for the Democratic Party. Uh, this is from a time when Redford was on fire. Uh, you know, he'd done uh, Three Days of the Condor, um, All the President's Men, The Sting, and he's no different here. His platform slowly being overcrowded by special interest groups until his voice becomes as hollow and generic as the establishment he initially criticised. Uh, Peter Boyle is excellent as the campaign manager, and Candida is clearly where Clooney's recent Ides of March took its inspiration from. Uh, and there's a great scene where Redford... Um, it's kind of climbing in the polls. There's a montage of him climbing in the polls, and he just very charmingly starts saying the same mantra over and over again. Right. And and then he's just in the back of this car, his campaign manager and the driver in the front, and he's kind of starts talking to himself as if he's you know, going like King Lear or something, kind of slightly mad. 
just mixing up the the words that he's been saying. Right. So it's just this gibberish. So it's a great scene. Um, I've been really enjoying watching the Redford seventies. I hadn't really investigated them that much, but he he was just great. I saw the voices. Oh, Ryan Reynolds, right? Yeah. Ryan Reynolds really launches himself into the role of a mentally unstable nice guy who descends into murder. Uh, the film benefits from Jenna Atherton's very game performance as the self-described office hottie in a small-town toilet manufacturing company who Reynolds becomes obsessed with. The film is unusual, and while a little repetitive, it has some standout moments that the colourful, bright world we have been seeing through Reynolds' eyes slowly ebbs away to a grimy, disturbing reality. Right, I really, I remember seeing the trailer thing that looked really neat. Yeah. He does the voices of his um, pets as well. Yeah, he? he does, and he does. He's he's got this, um, you know, kind of dumb dog who's the yep. good side of his conscience, and he's got this incredibly evil, sarcastic uh-huh. cat who yeah. who's Scottish. Yeah, and he does a lot. Like, I honestly, I didn't even realize yeah. at the end. I was like, I wonder who do those voices. And he did them, and I was like, mm. wow, it's really impressive. And it's also quite impressive because he does. He kind of as his, as the character, he tries to do like a Cockney accent. Mimicking right. King Jimmy Atherton, and he does it really poorly. Yeah, and so you're like, oh, he can't, you know, mimic yeah. anything, and then he's just absolutely nailing it. But he really digs into that role, and uh, yeah, the kind of colourful world you suddenly kind of realise for the first half you've been watching isn't actually reality. It's him. Yeah, you know, when he's not on the meds, right? But when he right. is on the meds, then you actually start to see uh, the world. You, you want to see this? Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Like I said, a little bit repetitive, yeah. but it is. Uh, especially the first half, you know, I say that a lot, but a lot of first half, first 45 minutes of films really grab you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is one of them. Uh, speaking of wolves, I saw Wolven or Wolfen. Oh, sure. Yeah. Random attacks across New York indicate a wild beast may be on the loose. Albert Finney and Diane Venora team up to investigate and composer James Horner predates his own score for Aliens with an eerily similar soundtrack. Uh-huh. You listen to that, you're like, wow, I can just, I feel like I'm watching the Aliens right, sure. scenes. Uh, it's an effective film, one of two directed by uh, Michael Wadley, and the other one he did was Woodstock. Okay, wow. Yeah, they're the only two films he ever did. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, just only works in the W section yeah. <laughs> of the alphabet, and that's... Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember seeing this and actually really liking it a long time ago. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but just you talking about the alien score makes me want to watch it again. Yeah, to... the score really stands out. Like yeah. you're like, wow, it's almost better than the film deserves. The films and also does that uh, predator point of view shot where it's all. Yes, I uh, remember that. Yeah, really, yeah, very similar. Edward James almost is in it. Yes, as like a native Indian, and yep. he's really good. He's got this great scene on top of oh. a of a of a bridge where he's talking to Albert Finney quite threateningly. Yeah, you're not sure whether he's messing with him or he's a genuine killer he's he's a really welcome presence in the film like he's got a, again he's only got about three scenes but they're all real stand out sure and finally i saw the death of superman lives efficient fan-made documentary on the ill-fated late 90s attempt to reinterpret superman with nicholas cage as the man of mm. steel the always chatty kevin smith retreads his well-practiced expletive-laden account of events that led him to writing the first draft of a film that he like recommended Tim Burton. They said, "Who should who should direct this?" They said, "Tim Burton." So they got hold of, hold of him. He said, "Yeah, I'll do it, but I'm not working with Kevin Smith. <laughs> I don't want to do the script." Okay. And um, so, depending on your knowledge of Burton, it may surprise you to find that he kind of burns with a desire to make the film still, and really regrets never coming to life. He's in the documentary. Yeah. So he's in, that was quite surprising. The only person who really isn't is Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Uh, producer John Peters uh, is the centre of ridicule from people who worked on the film, including his obsession with giant spiders. 
Yep. Uh, performing karate moves on production designers in the hallway and getting his young children to critique the graphic artist's work. Oh, yeah. I, I know graphic artists. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, they'd have it all up and they'd think, oh, here comes a producer and he'd just bring his kids in and go, okay, what do you like? And they're like, we like this and this and this and this. And they go, okay, great. Uh. <laughs> Uh, but ironically, it is the failure of the Batman series that Burton launched that provided Warner Brothers with cold feet and Superman Lives with the final nail in the coffin. Right. Because Batman and Robin flopped in 97. Yep. Yep. And they just went, whoa, no, no, no. Yeah, none of these superheroes. Yeah. <laughs> We're not about to take anything. No risky. money in superhero films. Yeah. And it's quite famously got the um, footage, the, back, the backstage yep. um, costume footage. Yeah. Um, which is oh, quite costume footage. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you see that one with these, like, got the kind of uh, Edward Scissorhands emo long hair and yes. he's kind of half blinking and everything else. But there's actually a second one they did the next year in 98. And he's got his hair, Nicholas Cage got his hair cut right down, almost like face off style. He's almost got the curl and yeah. the, the design's a lot further along. And he actually looks like almost the traditional. And I'm like, whoa, oh. he actually looks really good there. And he's not the crazy Nicholas Cage, yeah. you know, Wicker Man. Uh, you sure. know, wild-eyed kind of vampire's kiss. He's he's talking about it with Burton as they're spitting him out. And yeah, he says a couple of left-field things, but most of what he says is, seems quite in tune with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting little documentary to check out. Um, and like I say, a little more surprising that they managed to get Burton to talk about it. I yeah. wouldn't have thought he would have no, been too keen. Yeah. The dark side of the force is a pathway to many abilities some consider to be unnatural. So, Simon, what's the news? Well, the new Star Trek The Fast and the Furious trailer came out. Uh, Duncan posted a link to it on our Facebook page, and it was odd. Mm-hmm. For a start, it was set to the same Beastie Boys song that Kirk listened to in the first Star Trek film, because hundreds of years in the future, people will choose to rebel by listening to late 20th century popular music. Um, that's just the way it is. And it featured way more motocross stunts and kung fu than a film based on a traditionally kind of cerebral television series would normally contain, I thought. Yep. It's directed by Justin Lin, which I guess explains the tone of the trailer. But my favourite response to the trailer came from Simon Pegg, who struggled to contain his disappointment uh, when asked about it. I didn't love it because I know there's a lot more to the film, he said, which is a very understated way of saying that, you know, he thought it sucked, I think. Yeah, yeah. I saw this as well, actually. Um, I was a big Beastie Boys fan. Um, so is Abrams, apparently. Oh, okay. And that's well, where it comes that's from. That's why it's in the... But yeah, it's just like wholly inappropriate and kind of quite counterproductive for the purpose of Star Trek. Really odd tone. Yeah. When you're casting Star-Lord's dad, if you can't get Han Solo, why not get Snake Plissken? Mm. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is gunning for the star of Tarantino's Hateful Eight to play the Henry Jones to Chris Pratt's Indiana Jones. Look, I'm mixing up my Harrison Ford iconic roles. But yes, Chris Pratt and Kurt Russell will play father and son if director James Gunn has anything to do with it, which he probably will as he's the director. That's good casting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I'm sure that those I two... I can really see that. Yeah, and like I say, I think they'll have that kind of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade kind of vibe going with it. Yeah. The big news of the month was obviously the makers of The Revenant rushing to shut down rumours that Leonardo DiCaprio was raped by a bear. <laughs> um, it's clear from the trailer that Leo's character is attacked by a bear, mm-hmm. and yet a rumour spread this month that he was in fact raped by said bear in movie. Uh, what I like most about this story and why it's one of my favourite stories of the month even the year, perhaps, is that the headlines didn't say Leonardo DiCaprio's character. They said Leo himself. Now, I can't <laughs> help thinking that if this is what happened, it would somehow be bigger news. You know? <laughs> also, that an animal handler or two might have been fired. Because yeah. I think it seems like somewhat of an oversight to let your A-list star fall victim to an ursine sexual assault. Yeah. 
you know? It sounds like a South Park episode. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it did too. And I think it's uh, someone said rape twice because the bear comes back to attack him again. It's right. like, you know, if you were the animal handler, the first one you could go, okay, look, that's my bear. <laughs> but, but the second one, you know, that's... Questions have to be asked. Yeah, totally. There's an investigation at that point. Eh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tom Hardy, nothing some like that for him. That was uh, consensual, by the way. Oh, right. <laughs> The sequel no one wants to the original that no one should have seen. Independence Day Resurgence trailer is here. Looking like Sicario in its opening shots, ramping up the patented Prometheus trailer sound and embracing its Star Wars visual aspirations while answering the unasked question, whatever happened to Bill Pullman's career? Mm. And following the Jurassic Park Lost World sequel lesson of excising the central hero and just relying on Jeff Goldblum and turning up the special effects to 11. Um, I enjoyed the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm, I'm no Independence Day fan, but that yeah. trailer kind of worked for me. Do you think it'll look like really kind of gritty, dark reboot style to you? Totally, and I don't believe they'll go that way. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that's all. Uh, no, I don't believe the film will actually be that. It's a bit like some of those Transform- Transformers promos. Yeah. Uh, trailers actually did look kind of dark and cool. Yeah. And, and you know that the film's just, you know, yeah. um, racist jokes, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and shots of Megan Fox's ass. So, but but the trailers themselves gave it a, like uh, an epic feel, and I and I've got a feel this will be the same. It'll it'll end up being fluff. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those ones where you're like watching it, going, "Oh, Bill Pullman. I wonder what happened to him. Yeah. He's looking like Obi Wan Kenobi. Oh, look at this Judge Hirsch. I don't even know he's still alive. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> look, and finally, in my struggle to find movie news not about Star Wars, I mean, is there anything else anyone's talking about? No. I discovered a podcast in which Mel Brooks suggests Spaceballs 2, the search for more, for more money, <laughs> as it was jokingly referred to in the first Spaceballs, could be on the way. Now, Spaceballs wasn't Brooks' finest work, but it had a stack of guilty laughs. And if the 89-year-old, uh, 89, wants mm. to direct a sequel, I'm up for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's a curious one, Spaceballs, isn't it? Because I remember seeing it as a kid and going, it was just like a, just a little bit behind Star Wars. Yeah, I think yeah. it came out like four years after Jedi. Yeah, Shine had just come off Star Wars a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and it's not his funniest work, but no. but I mean, it's got a, it's got some good laughs, you know. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. The Force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. And now we're on to no comps, the part of the podcast where we go out and watch the latest release. Uh, and this month, we decided to see a little film called Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Directed by J.J. Abrams, starring Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Adam Driver, Oscar Isaacs, Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill. It's 30 years after the destruction of the second Death Star, and the Empire have been replaced by the First Order, accompanied by the sinister Jedi Knight known as Kylo Ren. The rebellion has fractured, Han Solo has gone his own way, and Luke Skywalker is missing. Then, a map that could lead to the discovery of Skywalker's location falls into the hands of renegade First Order trooper Finn, and Ray, a seemingly unremarkable scavenger from the desert planet Jakku. Together, they join forces with Han Solo to return the map to the Rebellion and face down a new threat, yet another Death Star-like device that threatens the galaxy. Mm. So look, this month there is only really one film to talk about. So like a small moon-sized space station that can nevertheless blow up an entire planet, we're going after the big one. We saw Star Wars The Force Awakens, and look, since this is the most anticipated film of the year, probably a few years in fact, we're going to assume that you've already seen it, uh, because there's really no way to have a good discussion about The Force Awakens without revealing a few spoilers. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll no doubt try not to say too much, 
So if for some reason you're a film fan and listen to a podcast about film and you haven't seen Star Wars The Force Awakens, I suggest you hit the big stop button until you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be very careful, but I'm sure there might be a, yeah. a couple of small revelations that crop up. Yeah, I think so. Hard to avoid. Yeah, it is. Um, look, there's, there is a confidence to the whole endeavour that emanates through the actors. And while it is more derivative than the prequels were of the original trilogy, The Force Awakens kind of seems to sidestep episodes one through three and fully embrace the original four to six. Secret map hidden in a droid that is saved from scavengers by a wide-eyed, good-hearted young person on a desert planet. Han and Chewie save a young woman from a guarded fortress, followed by an aerial assault by hopelessly outnumbered X-Wings. It's all here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, totally. It's, it's kind of one of my issues with film, is that it feels like it retreads so much of the first film in particular. Mm. Um, which I'm going to call a new hope, uh, which I'm not going to refer... No, I will. Oh, let's face it. I'll call it a new hope, because that's what all the kids call it, right? Yeah, yeah. In my head, it's always been Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, you know? me too. Um, it, it recycles so many familiar beats that it Feels like a remake, and not so much a new entry in the franchise. Mm. But look, the overwhelming response to The Force Awakens seems to be positive. But I can't help thinking that's more about relief that Abrams didn't screw it up. Yeah, you know, uh, the joy that the film has, has been made as well as it has been. There's been such bile spewed about Lucas's prequels that the biggest crime this film could have made would be to reference it in some way. I think if someone had said the word midichlorians, mm. people would have rioted. They would have been just yeah. like ripping up seats in the <laughs> cinema and throwing them at the screen. And yet they've kind of gone the safest route possible, which is simply duplicate a film people loved. Mm. And I'm not sure that's the answer either, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Lawrence Kasdan was the first scriptwriting star for me as a youngster. He was the first scriptwriter I was aware of. Right. Yeah, I just didn't know what a scriptwriter was. And then I was like, yep. uh, he had this one-two punch of Empire and Raiders. Uh, still two of my favourite films. Oh, totally. And it meant his return for episode seven may actually have ended up being the most inspired choice Abrams has made. How much of it he is responsible for, I'm not too sure. The film brims with humour, perhaps too much sometimes. As we said in last month's The Spectre review, it can kind of drain a scene of tension. And uh, I, I thought that the villain here suffered the most from the quips, particularly in the opening. Pilot Poe, um, you know, he, he gets captured and then he gets pulled down to, you know, face him face-to-face, -face, and then there's that silence, yeah. and he goes, oh, I don't know who should speak here, whether it's you or me, who should say the first words. It's a funny line, but again, it drains that of of tension, and I'm wondering whether that is intentional on their part. Sure. Yeah, I know what you mean. You wouldn't have got there with Leia confronting Vader the first time. Exactly. I mean, she, she was snarky at him, but, yeah. but not just having a gag, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 He doesn't seem scared at all. Like, no. You, you can see in no. the first New Hope... And I think we will do a bit of comparing to New Hope because it is so similar. Oh, yeah, it's unavoidable. Yeah. Um, do you know how I know that he's a really good pilot? Mm -hmm. Because everyone says he's a really good pilot. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to – you might have to excuse me for a minute because I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's because there's a short sequence which to me made a number of mistakes and hurt the film. So uh, both – in two ways, because it presented up a huge amount of coincidences um, in way of plot points. And it asked us to accept – what I felt were kind of off-character moments. So, like, on Jakku, the First Order attacking, right? Finn and Ray make their way to a spaceship to make their escape. When that ship is destroyed, they leap aboard the deserted Millennium Falcon, uh, waiting for them with all the likelihood of a helicopter sitting ready for James Bond's escape from a villain's exploding <laughs> base. Sorry, had to do that. Um, look, it got a good reaction from the audience, I suppose, because there was a nice joke attached to it. Once aboard, Ray discovers that she's one hell of a pilot. And when inevitable technical problems occur, because this is a Millennium Falcon, obviously, uh, she's also one hell of an engineer. 
having made their escape, they are captured by who else? And Solo, who has returned to his old life as a smuggler and just happened to be in the neighbourhood. Now, the joke about that heap of garbage, like I say, got a good laugh. Everything else about the sequence felt really off to me. Mm-hmm. Um, a better sequence, I think, would have had the Millennium Falcon show up to save the day, perhaps emerging out of the sun so we could go get one of those references to yeah. the new hope that uh, Abrams seems to love. Solo could still have his hero's entrance when he steps down the ramp of the Falcon to rescue the kids and reveal that he too was tracking the droid that was carrying the map to Luke's hideout. Not just smuggling in the same general vicinity. Mm. It would have saved us having a forgettable confrontation with two glang- gangs, including the wasted use of stars from the raid film. Yeah. <laughs> um, and some tentacle monsters, which that whole scene served no real purpose except for a little sidetrack moment. Yeah. But I think more importantly, it would have saved us from having to believe that the arc of Solo's character, beautifully engineered through the first three Star Wars films, had been kind of just simply reset. Like, I didn't believe that he would just disappear and become a smuggler at the age of, you know, 60-odd. It would also mean that Ray didn't have to become a great pilot, super engineer, no reason to suspect that she should have either of those skills in the first place. Mm. This puts too much on her character, I think. Yeah, that's right. I think in, in not defense of it, but I think there's a lot to be discovered about the characters that they haven't revealed, particularly her past. And I think that they will go into that. Oh, and look, I I think we can both make guesses as to her character's past. Yeah. But I still think at that stage it puts too much on her mm. to be. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's a bit of an issue for me that by the end of the film we know she's a really good fighter pilot, mm-hmm. a top engineer, super strong with the forces it emerges, mm-hmm. and tough as nails with the lightsaber. She's yeah. kind of loaded with awesomeness yeah. as if that's what, what makes us care about characters or, or make us think that she's a great character to follow. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if you compare it to Luke's growth, he's a great pilot. That's established really early on, though. That's, mm. you know. Uh, well, he can bullseye Wombrats. Wombrats in his T-16. Yeah. Totally. That's, that's, so that's established. Hers yeah. is a bit of a shock when it happens. Yeah. Um, he's strong with the force, of course, but he can't really use it because he hasn't been trained. Yeah. Uh, and he hasn't wielded a lightsaber before. In fact, even when he has undergone training, he loses his first confrontation with Darth Vader in the second film mm. and loses his hand to boot. Ray, with no training... Uh, like I said, there will be spoilers here. Wins her first battle quite handily. Mm. And would surely have defeated Kylo Ren if a narrative plot device hadn't literally opened up between them. Yeah. Um, I have to feel she should have lost that fight, actually. Yeah. There should have been. And, and, you know, you could have still got her out of it the same way you got Luke out of his fight as well. Mm. But it just created too much for me to really bond with that character in some ways. Yeah. And this comes back to Adam Driver, who I kind of find is the most curious villain of the series. Yeah, kind of yeah, unimaginable totally. in Lucas's prequels. Mm. Um, his weakness in the final battle is, is a real curiosity as to why they chose to do that. Uh, you know, because if you look at the other films, Darth Maul's hubris is his downfall, and he manages to take down take on two Jedi. You know, the Sith. Dooku is too strong for Anakin and clones uh, until Revenge of the Sith mm. when he defeats him. Luke has to train for three films until his strength is sufficient to match Vader's. Uh, yeah, and Ray just has this increasingly like rapid ability with the force, like she's been injected with steroid level of midichlorines. You know, like think about how long it took Luke to use the force enough to like move the lightsaber into his hand in Empire when he's hanging upside down in the ice cave. It took all his effort and he'd been training. Yet Ray can do this task simply and against the Sith, or what we assume is the Sith, no less. This is a guy who stopped a laser bolt in mm. mid-air and hung it there. It looked yeah. amazing, by the way. I love yeah. that shot. Uh, so the thought that he 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 can't beat this girl, yeah, and and I think the the Jedi mind trick scene is perhaps the most egregious example because it impacts on the narrative so heavily. 
and I really that really pulled me out. Like the rest of it, I was kind of cruising with, but that that Jedi mind trick when you know she's chained up and then she commits yeah. a stormtrooper. I was like, I just you don't know what the Millennium Falcon is, but you you don't and you don't kind of really know what the force is, but you know Jedi mind tricks and you know this and you know that. And so they know what the Millennium Falcon is when it's explained to them, mm. which leads me to believe that these characters are actually fans of the movies. Yeah, that's in some right. respects. Yeah, their knowledge seems to be that. Yeah, I actually thought the performances from the two leads were, were really good. I thought they seamlessly slot into the, with the old universe's characters. And while Fisher is given little to do, um, Harrison Ford seems in his element as a world-weary pirate, and it's difficult to know whether he has ever had a better on-screen partnership than with Chewbacca. Oh, look, totally. Look, on on the positive side for me, because I've been, you know, being reasonably negative, uh, this could be called The Ford Awakens. Because <laughs> uh, Harrison Ford is the beating heart of this film for me. Uh, you know, I loved his delivery of lines like, you know, the dark side, the Jedi is real. Mm. It really sold that into me and just mm. the, the, sold the history of the franchise. Yeah. Um, and getting to say that's not how the Force works at one point, right? <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> that was know? great. He's, yeah. he's, he's both the most heartfelt and the funniest parts of this film. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's when the humor works, you know, is when he says, that's not how the Force works. And then Chewie says something and goes, what, you're cold? You know, <laughs> and they're in the ice. And I yeah. really like that. That was one, two. Really, really bristles great. at you know fourteen parsecs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> right. Yeah, and and that's cool. The, the, but then some parts don't work as as well. Like the, I thought the trash compactor line was just too knowing and too. And, and Partly his fault. Um, I I think that was a like you say a too knowing a line to put in there. It is, and it also reduces Han Solo's um, adventures down to just those three films mm. it's like he didn't do anything else and it's like he had his whole life before when he was in the space pirate and who yeah. knows what he's been up to in 30 years since oh, and then he's just like hey well what about that death star and the trash compactor and oh, i just like, don't well. buy that he returned to life as smuggling either and i've seen that before but <laughs> whereas you know other nods to the past where you know like star destroyers and the atats laying abandoned in the sand it's a real joy to see gosh i love that look it's a great looking film dirt and rust and decay are back in the star wars universe yeah very really happy about that yeah, yeah. Uh, it once again feels like a lived-in real place. Uh, I adored the shots of Ray sliding down the sand dunes. Yeah, you know? that's great. Um, and exploring, like you say, the wreck of the Star Destroyer. And as Darren Bevan rightly pointed out, the shots of TIE Fighters against the sunset was uh, great. Mm. Stunning. Yeah. Some really beautiful-looking stuff in there. Yeah. And, I mean, that speaks to Abrams. Is it? Yeah, he's a really gifted storyteller, especially visually. And, yeah. And I was just going to say, like, as something like Super 8 proved... He's an inspired mimic of his hero's work, and I kind of it kind of has more of a feel for what audiences loved about Star Wars than Lucas did. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're gonna like talk prequels and yeah, um, yeah, it does. Look, I'll tell you one thing. I, d- I I had a problem with that. The galaxy suddenly feels very small, though. We're told that the first order base is much larger than the Death Star, and yet people seem to re- be able to run around inside it from one place to another quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Like the de- geography of that seemed really confusing to me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in Star Wars, it felt like a maze they were in that Death Star, but at the base in this in this film, it seemed to be very easy to navigate. Um, and during the Rebel attack on the base, it's remarked that we've lost almost half the fleet or something, which seems to make the fleet shockingly small in the <laughs> thirty years since um, Jedi finished. Yeah. Uh, and and I never really got a sense of the scale of the rebel base either. And, you know, I think capturing the geography of fantasy worlds is kind of an art form. Mm-hmm. You know, the Star Wars films to date have done it really well. You know, you get a sense of the large world and then you go on a, into a bit more micro and then, you know, in close as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and Peter Jackson did it masterfully in the Rings films, I, I thought, for mm-hmm. the most part. But Abrams, outside the opening scenes of Jakku, 
And look, I agree with you. They're masterful. They were fantastic. Mm. The trouble establishing how this galaxy hangs together. Yeah, like I never got a sense when they visited the bar where that was or, or how big that w- area was. Yeah. You know, it was a bit confusing to me. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. I think the, the film's opening is among its strengths, starting with pace and purpose and wonderfully absent of trade disputes and Senate debates. It's a return to form from the offset and um, it kind of makes it apparent that the pace of this is going to, re- you know, it's going to return to the Star Wars that we were used to. I think it needs to slow up a little if it's going to do that. Actually, I could do with a bit more quiet. Ultimately, for me, The Force Awakens really does work. It's not the least original. It seems to be what people wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't take the sort of risk that we see it getting torn apart from one end of the internet to the other. For me, it's over-reliance on beats from the original make it seem like a fan film made by fans and populated by fans. I mean, how often do characters within the film comment on the legacy and legends of characters like Han Solo, Luke Skywalker, and Darth Vader? Mm. It's constantly, they're even referring back to it. Yeah. It'll be up to the sequels to see if this new franchise can step out of the shadows of the original trilogy and become its own beast, mm-hmm. or simply continue to be kind of a uh, a warmed over copy for a new generation. I think. Yeah. Well, I, I do wonder if the next one then they're going to hit that Empire Strikes Back beat of it being a darker one and it's going to go. Yeah, into... yeah. And I hope they're more confident they're able to do have more originality in the storytelling. Um, I I ca- kind of can't help feeling too that there's such positivity about this film at the mm. moment, and I can't help feeling that as time goes by. The feeling about The Force Awakens might mirror what we saw with The Phantom Menace and that when Menace came out, reviews were really solid. Mm. People were just delighted to be back into that Star Wars universe, you know. Mm. Um, and they kind of ignored the many defects of the film. But as time went on, the critical reputation of Menace sunk mm. quite a bit. And I wouldn't be surprised if the same kind of happened with this film. Not, not as bad, but I think people are just so pleased to be sharing that Star Wars universe. Yeah. And they're so pleased that they haven't ballsed it up. Yeah, that's there's probably right. people are, I think, are slightly, I think it's been overpraised. Yeah, I think you're possibly right there. I think it, it's, it's not a five-star film, but uh, I thought it was a return to form and, and, and exceeded my very realistic expectations. And I always thought, actually, that uh, I was a little, I think I was pleased in this because when I saw the trailer and I saw Han Solo and he's like, we're home, Chewie, and it was like, mm, that didn't really get me, you know, as sure. much. But what I did like um, and obviously it wasn't any of the trailers, but I did like the idea of a latter-day Luke Skywalker. And I thought hey, it was a natural fit for him to to be in the series. And so I am looking forward to where they go with him. I'm really looking forward to seeing where they go with him. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that's, that's the kind of real, uh, that's what it really has on its side for episode eight, is the introduction of him. Yes. But the truly jaw-dropping moments of Star Wars series, they may never quite return, I think because um, we are so familiar with this world and it is so keen on referencing itself. But for another generation of cinema goers, you know, the young ones, they've kind of been introduced to what still remains, I think, one of the kind of great cinema experiences of our time, which is to go and see a Star Wars film at the movies. And so hopefully they will watch this and feel the same way as maybe we did when the, the first came out, probably more than they did with Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith and all those ones. Yeah, hard to know because I do know people who grew up in that generation of seeing Phantom Menace and do have a love for it. Right. But you're right, I'm pretty certain the, the younglings will embrace this film. And here we are, that time of the year again. It's the end of the year and we're here for the Spoiler Alert Awards for 2015. Yep, like the Academy Awards, but without a need to get Seth MacFarlane to offend everyone with some sort of misogynist song and dance routine. <laughs> the Spoiler Alert Awards are here once again to hand out a few well-earned awards. 
maybe pop a couple of lumps of coal in someone's stocking. Uh, as usual, we'll be following our own slightly unique style with a few awards of our own choosing. Um, so, look, Duncan, do you want to kick it off? Feel Good Documentary of the Year goes to Electric Boogaloo. The story of Canon Films is like sharing a drink with the most entertaining guests and listen to them talk about the person who makes them laugh the most. Both heavily critical and loving of Israeli cousins who bought a communist production factory mentality to major studio Hollywood in the 80s. Responsible for dubious honours like making increasingly reprehensible Death Wish sequels and carpet bombing cinemas with Chuck Norris action movies. It is a celebration of single-minded determination. They are like a terminator of movie making, powered by momentum. Uh, Bill and Ted's Alex Winter is especially animated in discussing the producers of films as varied as Luferino's Hercules, Superman 4, and Missing in Action. Uh, it's funny you should mention this because I haven't, I haven't seen this film, but I watched the trailer and read an article about it today. Right. Uh, the trailer looks fantastic. There's so many great looking moments. Uh, that caused me to watch the trailer for Ninja 3 Domination. Yes. Uh, which is the Ninja Exorcist. Um, how they involve, how they managed to make those two franchises kind of into a single kind of terrible knockoff film, I'll never know. But, um, yeah, I, that looks fantastic, man. It, it is it is great. And, it, honestly, it's the most fun. Like you, I could have just kept watching yep. them talk about these yep. these guys. And what's interesting is they talk about these two Israeli cousins um, as if they're dead. And at the time of they're making the film, they weren't. Right. I think the guy ended up dying. But they had this thing where they would um, rush films in production to beat other films. Yeah. And uh, they said that, uh, you know, at the end credits, they say these brothers or these cousins, I should say, um, rushed their own documentary into production and beat this film in. By, <laughs> they heard that they were making this documentary and made their own, beat it by three months into the cinema. And it's just fantastic. It's a really, really, um, it's a great story. Yeah. yeah, it's really fascinating. My first award is Weirdest Blockbuster of the Year. Um, now, I'm sure there are some fairly odd independent films floating around, but it takes a special kind of moxie to make a straight-faced, big-budget flick starring the likes of Oscar winner Eddie Redmayne, Channing Tatum, and, of course, Mila Kunis, in which Tatum plays a genetically engineered space dog with rocket-powered roller skates, and Kunis is a frequently kidnapped space princess who can hypnotise bees. Um, I'm of course talking about Jupiter Ascending mm -hmm. uh, Redmayne's at one moment whispering The next screaming Is one of the weirdest things in the mix But seriously look Everything about this film is just flat out bonkers <laughs> I almost want to see it uh, for that reason uh, it's, it's never boring So if you do get a chance I could say Yeah go for it <laughs> uh, It's got some cool visuals Yeah, uh, It's also got like an action sequence Which was just like Pouring molten lead into my eyeballs. I couldn't understand it. I did, it was just <laughs> flat out crazy. Uh, and the film is just so strange. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, everyone keeps hoping that the Wachowskis are going to um, hit Matrix Gold again. Yeah, the same way they, yeah, the same way they just kept like throwing money at M. Night Shyamalan. Yeah. Hoping he'd hit the Sixth Sense Gold again. Yeah, although his last film looks pretty cool. Um, right. I can't remember the title of it. But the um, Happening 2? No, <laughs> uh, no, it's a it's a real low budget looking little uh, horror film, and it looks kind of cool actually. Right, yeah, okay. Best non professional on screen talent: The Wolfpack, the New York documentary following a following a cabal of brothers living in lockdown in their parents' apartment for their entire lives, becomes a celebration of the power of cinema. Their escape by recreating their favorite movies is fascinating. Their attention to detail and creativity is to be admired, but so is their unique and remarkably constructive way of finally standing up 
to their cult leader-like father. Uh, it's a fantastic documentary. I saw this at the film festival, mm-hmm. and the director was there, and she talked about it. Yeah, I remember you saying that at the time. You were so f- that's so lucky. Yeah, it's so great. It is. Able to get the director here. It's great. Um, but it's uh, it's expertly constructed, especially at the beginning. Um, but you immediately kind of are fascinated by those characters. Uh, as one that really sticks with you. It's probably my favourite documentary of the year, actually. I'm just going down my list and I'm realizing I've got a lot of rants. Uh, so I'm going to swing straight into the IR raising blockbuster of the year. Mm-hmm. The one that really uh, set me off. Terminator Genesis, obviously. Yeah. Uh, oh man, did I hate this film, eh? I hated that it just repeated the beats of the first Terminator and then slathered on a thick coat of mind-melting plot contrivances. Like Sarah Connor's ability to build a time machine out of, I don't know, tin cans and discarded ZX81s, perhaps. <laughs> Or the fact that Terminators are all apparently controlled by a central computer and yet operate independently when the plot requires it. Mm-hmm. Or that machinery can't travel through time. I mean, that's established. Except for when the plot requires that it can, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Jai Courtney was as beefy as he was bland. And Amelia Clark was just simply miscast. And the less said about Schwarzenegger's apparently hilarious toothy grin, the better. And yet the Terminator universe has loads of possibilities. What if they sent Terminators to the wrong time period? How cool would that be? Say, in an alternative timeline future where the fight would be fairer. Or the Middle Ages where the fight would be damn near impossible. I'd yeah. love to see that. What about a whole army of Terminators sent back in time? I mean, they keep sending them back. So imagine the sight of endless bursts of light over a cityscape as Terminators zap in from the future in their droves. I mean, that is sell tickets right there, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. And how about a horde of T-1000s? pooling their powers and transforming into one giant liquid metal Godzilla-like monster. <laughs> That'd be great. Hell, there's a bunch of novels ideas right there, which will never happen, so long as they can just convince Arnie to put on his shades and say, I'll be back one more time. Yeah. And just mess around with timelines and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, like it, do- like it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Just do what you want. The Female Action Advancement Award doesn't go to Mad Max but rather Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Christopher McQuarrie writes for and directs a Golden Globe-nominated actress, Rebecca Ferguson, as a morally conflicted double agent, both ruthless and vulnerable. Ferguson's character, the appropriately named Ilsa Faust, is more than Ethan Hunt's equal, constantly outsmarting him and saving his life in one of the film's standout sequences. She also has the most gripping of tussles, a knife fight in the shadows with the major physical threat in the film, and she defeats him. Wow. So leaving it for her rather than Cruz to triumph. It's a subtle shift in the action and in the gender roles because while the romantic connection between the leads is hinted at, it's never dominant and they never feel the need to act upon it. Right, this is the only, because I mean this came out this year, so it's the only Mission Impossible I haven't seen yet. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and so she's really good. I have heard good things. Scene of the year for me. Last month I talked about how much I enjoyed Creed. Singling out a scene where Adonis Creed fights a round and a half including the between-round breaks and one uninterrupted shot. I speculated that it was probably made of several takes looped together with a bit, with a bit of CGI trickery, like, as they do. Uh, well, it turns out it wasn't. Nothing beats doing it the old-fashioned way, apparently. And the scene is a stunner, showing how scary and scarily long a round of boxing is, and how short the rest between rounds is. The whirling sound design and close-in-camera accentuates the violence and, and chaos of the fight, making it, for me, the standout scene from a really fine film. I also mentioned uh, the se- the moment where he gets knocked down in the in the final fight, and how incredible it looks. And again, I thought uh, a bit of CGI because he gets, gets that whole slow motion, you know, cheek wobble mm. as he gets hit. Uh, they did it by hitting him. Right. <laughs> um, and they actually showed some B roll footage, and uh, 
he was saying when they were doing this scene, they were like, how do we make this look real? Because the slow-mo camera will show anything that's not fu- real. Mm. And he said he could hear Sylvester Stallone Stallone start laughing with the camera. He goes, what? He said, you're going to have to take the shot. Because <laughs> he kind of realized. And in fact, he had to take it twice. And oh. apparently this was light-headed for, you know, <laughs> that was the end of the day shooting. He was light-headed for a day or so afterwards. Yeah. Only way to get the shot. They didn't do that double knockdown, you know, like the... Um like Carl Weathers and um, and Stallone oh. didn't. <laughs> no, great. they did not, mate. I've got to uh, say, they did not. Oh, I love the double knockdown. The double knockdown stands a test of time. Award for aiding child development goes to Inside Out. Over the years, Pixar has delivered smart, heartwarming films, but they took things to another level with 2015's Inside Out, explaining the rapidly evolving complexities of emotions as a child turns into an adult by way of the turbulence of adolescence. It really is a great tool to mapping the path to emotional maturity uh, by way of a journey through a wonderful adventure land with a sharper sense of humour delivered at a relentless speed. Um, inside Out, like I say, I would not be surprised if this ends up on a shortlist for yep. best film. Yeah, really, yeah, I really, think it probably will. What yeah. I've heard. Yeah, and uh, I'm not a massive animation fan, so I don't go see that many of them, um, but I really think that this is Pixar's finest moment so far, right. even eclipsing Toy Story probably. Yeah, wow. Mm. Yeah. Okay, the trend that needs to die this year award. Um, this could almost be my just my big tree of woe, but I won't. I won't. Look from the woman hating roar of the of Jurassic World, the Terminator Genesis, Creed to this month's Star Wars: The Force Awakens, and now I think about it, almost Spectre, but not quite. One ugly trend towed over this year's cinema releases: a desperate reliance on audience nostalgia over actual originality. Mm-hmm. For me, of the four. Only Cree really managed to tweak its nods to the Rocky story enough to come up with something that walked that fine line of evoking our passion for the original film while still, while still feeling enough like its own film. The Force Awakens will work for most audiences since the Star Wars film it was referencing was the one that everyone really wanted anyway. Mm-hmm. Just ignoring the existence of the prequels is enough for it to get a collected nod of approval anyway. But Jurassic World and, and Terminator Genesis felt like they were simply bolted together from highlights of the most successful films of their respective franchises. The plot holes, as people refer to them, often mistakenly, I think, that emerged damaged the scripts, both of which felt like they could use another draft or two to, to remove oddities like the brutal, unnecessary death of a peripheral character in Jurassic World. So misogynistic, that film, by the way. <laughs> None of these films felt particularly innovative, but what's alarming for me is that they all made great big buckets of cash. Terminator Genesis may have just scraped in due to its success in China, meaning it will be getting a sequel. So, hey, Thanks, China. <laughs> but all of these films are successes, which I guess guarantees that no one has learned anything. Least of all, us, the audience, who seem only too happy to plonk down our hard-earned cabbage to watch a virtual clone of our favourite childhood films out of the CG factory, you know? Yeah. Get ready for more of the same in 2016, folks. <laughs> yeah, that won't die anytime soon. I was, no. think, I was thinking as well about the, um, just to veer off into the uh, James Bond um, nostalgia. And, and honestly, I don't think that's some. Um, yeah, but I was actually thinking about this after last month's podcast and after we discussed it, and I was thinking, you know what? I think that they've been doing it for quite a long time now. Right. In, in, in subtle, some subtle, some not so subtle ways. And I really think it's kind of probably around the time of uh, Die Another Day because it was the 40th anniversary of Bond, and it's just stacked with references. That one had it pretty hard. Yeah, and that one had a lot. And even uh, Casino Royale didn't really, but Quantum had... Enough. It had a little nods, 
And then Skyfall had even more, and then Spectre just completely went overboard. So I hope they really rein it in. Yeah. Just on that yeah. level. And same again, as you pointed out, with Star Wars Episode Seven, uh, it just pulled you out of the um, yeah. of the universe. And I guess you bit. could be saying, look, um, sequels are inevitable and they're a big part. And so I'm not identifying anything new, but I think there's a change in the way these sequels are happening and what they're doing. And that they're becoming, they're not really carving their own path anymore, mm. at least this year anyway. Yeah. Um, so they're even more reductive, these sequels, um, in the past year. Mm. Well, my most fun in the cinema award does go to Mad Max Fury Road. Thank you. <laughs> George Miller made the film that had everyone talking this year. A double barrel assault on the senses, embraced by fans as the true heir to Mad Max 2 Road Warrior, and by many as that rarest of examples of, fe- of a feminist action film. Above all, it was a blockbuster that lit up the mid-year like no other film, even eclipsing an Avengers sequel, delivering the kind of film that you probably didn't even know you wanted. Yeah, loved it, loved it. And look, um, jumping off that, I'm going to go with the film I enjoyed the least in the cinema this year. Uh, Looking like every bit of the disaster the production seemed determined to make it, The Fantastic Four was easy my least enjoyable movie of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoyed Pixels more. <laughs> um, the curse of this Dune franchise hit this one hard, resulting in a film that took way too long to get going, skipped a year ahead in the timeline, just when things were actually kind of getting interesting, mm-hmm. and it had a third act that seemed confused and truncated. Also, The Thing's It's clobberin' Time catchphrase is revealed to be a line that his bully of his older brother used to use on him <laughs> while he was beating him up. They might as well have said... Looks like you walked into the door again, or cook me some eggs. <laughs> you know, domestic abuse gave him that line. Yeah, good, good to know. Look, I've got my movie of the year, and I've kind of I cheated. I've cheated, man. Um, I've given myself two runs at this by having a horror film of the year. Okay, because you know that's how I roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm choosing favorite horror, and my pick was It Follows, the beautiful indie horror film with fine performances, an irresistible premise. I thought and an 80s throwback of a score that worked on its own creepy merits as well. Uh, and also, look, special mention to A Girl Walks Home in the, Alone at Night, the exquisite Iranian black-and-white feminist vampire film, which was all I needed to know. That was uh, my pick of the film festival. But my movie of the year, and this is a tough one for me, but I'm going to go with Mad Max Fury Road. Nice. How there may have been better films this year, but none of those other films had a one-armed Charlie Saron battling bikers and mutants while driving a souped-up truck across a desert in the company of a battle-scarred Tom Hardy. And I can bet that none of them featured kinetic stunt work and driving scenes, mostly practical stunt work, I might put out, like Fury Road. This is a film that shouldn't exist, you know? It's a big, loud, feminist action film that celebrates real action, filmed clearly and beautifully. It's at once a throwback and an electrifyingly fresh vision from the 70-year-old director of Happy Feet. Mm. You know, that this film happened this year, like you say, in the middle of the year, mm. was just, uh, what a godsend. Yeah, it really was. You look back at this year, and I think that's kind of that and Star Wars are the two big ones that everyone's talking about. Yeah, and I love yeah. the fact that, um, you know, it was six months ago now or whatever, but people are, are still using it, um, putting it in their best of lists. Yeah. So, like, it's, it hasn't faded in people's minds either, which is great, and I'm glad to see it's still being talked about. Contemplate this on the Tree of Woe. And welcome to Tree of Woe, uh, one of our favourite parts of the show. And this is the last Tree of Woe for the year. Ah, it is, wow. yeah, wow. So we better go up big, I suppose. Um, so if you're new to the show, Tree of Woe is where we, get to find, where we get to find something we've really annoyed us in the month of cinema and punish it, punish it by hanging it on the Tree of Woe uh, as Conan was made to uh, suffer for his crimes on the Tree of Woe in Conan the Barbarian. 
One of my favourite films. Um, so, Duncan, what's offended you? What's raised your eye this month? Well, really, it's not this month. It's this year. And oh. um, it's also pretty much my last spoiler alert award, and that's the uh, 2015's biggest waste of pixels, which is pixels. Oh. <laughs> Adam Sandler, front and centre, eternally hanging on the tree of woe like a crucified Cheshire cat, teasing us with his unyielding presence. Look, there was no lower point in my 2015 viewing experience than this film. The sad by-the-numbers filmmaking is outstripped by a multiple choice of questionable views on women and near homicidal hostility toward character development. Uh, this was absolutely my lowest point um, in an empty cinema that I watched. It yeah, <laughs> look, I, I still enjoyed it more than Fantastic Four. <laughs> but wow. part of that might have been my expectation, eh? Because um, yeah. Pixels, I, I, I suspect it was going to be awful. Um, and, and I wasn't disappointed in that. <laughs> yeah, I think that it was just a um it was a kind of an existential crisis of a film for me to sit through. Um you you know, you could watch something like Fantastic Four or anything and you could probably go, "Wow, this is, you know, this is pretty bad." But there was something um kind of uh um what's the word? Kind of yeah, just life-sapping about watching Pixels uh, that I found yeah, slowly kind of ebbed away. I thought it was one of the laziest of his films I've ever seen. Yeah. Um as much as um just go with it. Just go with it. Is a worse film, I think, in many ways. Yeah. At least there was an energy to what he was trying to do. Mm. I thought. Whereas just, just it was the ultimate showing up. Yeah. And just doing your thing. Yeah. And uh, and the 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 just the misogyny level. I mean, we talk about that a bit this year. Yeah. And that really encapsulated it all. And particularly, my biggest problem was turning like one of you know this generation's greatest sport stars into just like gold ding whore, basically. Yeah. Like, Serena Williams really needs to, you know, gold dig with some... What was she doing in this film? Yeah, it's just <laughs> shocking. Um, but, yeah, so that was my low point, definitely, Pixels. But um, a good one to review for, for, for the podcast. It's always fun to ah. revisit Sandler when he, um, you know... Well, it was our fifth year, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. Look, um, I'm going for a bit of a Christmas theme here. Uh, and for various reasons, I've been subjected to a whole lot of Christmas movies this month. And like a famous Dickensian grump, it's made me go all humbuggy on the genre. It's not that I'm inherently anti-Christmas or that I hated all the movies I watched. Heck, I've got a soft spot for the whimsy of Elf. And Fred Claus, despite being truly horribly wrong-headed and execution, <laughs> has a great concept and, and kind of a decent cast too. But what gets my Christmas goat is the message of Christmas movies. All of them, each and every glittery snowbound one of them, has the same message to Hawk. You have to believe in Christmas. If Tim Allen is going to get his Mrs. Claus and the Santa Claus too, mm -hmm. or if Will Ferrell is going to save Christmas and Elf, then cynical, cold-hearted folk like you and me need to get in the Christmas spirit and start believing in a fat, ageless man in a flying sled who whirls around the world on Christmas Day, somehow managing to sneak into every child-filled house on the planet and deliver them presents. That's ridiculous. Yep. That's obviously ridiculous. And I know what you're thinking right now. It's just a movie. The kids' movie, and you happily accepted Will Policeman, Alien Bloodsuckers, and The Power of the Force this month alone. <laughs> but the difference is that Christmas movies are peddling a dangerous message. They're peddling the message that kids need to ignore reality and trust their hearts, to simply believe whatever the hell they want to believe, and trust logic to one side because logic is somehow inherently evil and bad. Again, this wouldn't be quite so bad, though it is, I believe, pretty bad. <laughs> If they didn't use an orchestrated lie that parents choose to tell kids as evidence. <laughs> the whole innocent-seeming argument boils down 
Believe what you want. Don't trust rational thought. And hey, here's a widespread cultural lie to back it all up. So onto the Christmas tree of low Christmas films. Like a tawdry angel of wrong-headedness, let me impale you on the tippy-top of the highest branch where you can spend the festive season suffering for your child-deluding sins. <laughs> Fantastic rant. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. it really annoys me. A good Christmas themed. I can imagine, uh, you know, up there with the fairy lights on the tree of woe there. Yeah. I, hey, by the way, if you've got kids listening to this podcast, mm. um, they shouldn't have. Yeah. What we did say? Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that also reminds me of, I think it's uh, The Miracle on 42nd Street. Um, sure. Or 34th Street. I can't even remember which one it is. Um, but in that, they uh, they put Santa Claus on trial, basically. Because right. uh, he turns up and, they, yeah. and they're like, well, this guy claims to be Santa Claus and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they get off it, uh, they basically win the case by pointing at a, a dollar bill that says, in God we trust. And they say, well, it says, in God we trust, and we can't prove that God exists, so hey, he gets off. And they're like, you're right. And I love that they had to go to money <laughs> <laughs> and God tied into uh, Santa yeah. Claus. It's just, uh, it's just hilarious. But it's, it's, not, it's not like a satirical film. It's no. like this childhood uh, yeah. Your favourite. I always remember making a promo for the movie um, Loch. I think it was Loch Ness, the one with um, Ted Dancer. Yeah. And he's a scientist, and he goes to Loch Ness to find the monster. And this kid says to him, "And God help me, I used it in my promo." Uh, <laughs> he says to this kid, "He says I've got to see it before I believe." And the kid says, "No, first you believe it, then you see it." Yeah. And um, you know that's the message of a lot of child um of kids' films, and it's a terrible message. It is. Spoiler alert. And that is spoiler alert for this month and for 2015. And for the year. Unbelievable. And, and our 50th. And our 50th. A half century of podcasts. And that's not including all the specials we've done, like the movie challenges and all the rest of it. Yeah, totally. This is a big one for us. It is, yeah. Um, and look, we had a bit of a think about the song we need to go out to this mm. month. You know, it's a Star Wars theme. It's Christmas. There's only one Star Wars Christmas song mm. that we could play. And that's Princess Leia's Life Day song from the Star Wars Holiday Special, I believe, in 1978. Yeah, sung by Carrie Fisher herself. Yeah, yeah that's right. And um, quite uh, legendary. I'm sure most of you have seen bits of this, if not yep. all of it. Uh, and I remember there's a bit of a uh, uh, urban myth, probably started by Carrie Fisher herself, seeing she's quite forthright with all of it, that she was out of her mind on cocaine at the time. So I've got to feel she had to be. Um, <laughs> yeah. We were just talking off mic before, but I, I did see this as a kid when it first played. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Just delighted at the age of six or seven just to have more Star Wars in my life. Yeah, this is great because I'm one of those guys who, uh, you know, grew up with Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and all the rest of it particularly. And uh, I wasn't aware of this until probably yeah. about, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And then finally saw it probably about 10 years ago. Yeah. So I... I um. I luckily didn't have my childhood destroyed yeah. by it. Um, Staggering it exists, it really is. Yeah. Then again, you know, I, I went to the movie to see Caravan of Courage as well. So. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. so look, thanks to everyone for listening uh, for the last 50 episodes and yeah. more. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, five years. We've celebrated our f- uh, fifth anniversary this yep. year. We've celebrated our 50th podcast. And... Uh, you know, for me, it's the kind of cinematic sweet spot, really, for me. Uh, within a month, I've had a James Bond film and a Star Wars film. So yeah, that's pretty good going. That's pretty much my childhood summed yeah. up right there. Yeah, I, <laughs> I got to see a man's penis turn into a wolf penis. Yeah, that's so it's right. a good month for me as well. But yeah, so thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, and we will see you next year. Have a Merry Christmas yeah. and a Happy New Year. Yeah, take care, everyone. Cheers. We celebrate a day of day of harmony.
pigeons and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid.